Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Before we introduce today's guest, we'd just like to thank all of our listeners again for all of their support. If you're enjoying the podcast and you've liked what you've heard so far, we'd love to hear your feedback. So if you could review the podcast and rate them, it would be fantastic. And if you want to get hold of us again, we're available on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and on our website at www.thegolddustpodcast.com coach.com now to introduce today's guest we've got michael beal on the golders podcast michael is currently the first team coach at glasgow rangers but has previously worked at liverpool chelsea and sao paulo in brazil where he was the assistant manager for those that have read our book goldust how to become a more effective coach quickly they'll be very familiar with mick he featured heavily in the book, and we were extremely thankful for his experiences and input. Since arriving at Rangers as part of Steven Gerrard's coaching staff in 2018, Mick has played an instrumental part in their turnaround as they look to win their first league title in 10 years. Mick has a wealth of knowledge, and his ability to connect with and relate to the people in his environment is world class, as you'll see in this interview. Mick, welcome. How are you, mate? I'm really good, thanks. Thanks for having us, Keith and David. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to come on and, and follow up the, uh, the excellent stuff that was in your book, which I, I really enjoyed reading. It was fantastic to be part of it as well. And, and uh, obviously the podcast now, I listen to them and it's fantastic for the coaching community. So it's a pleasure to come on. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Well, I'm sure you'll be, you'll be sharing some of your knowledge, wisdom, uh, as we start to go through this episode. Before we actually start, though, mate, just share with us a little bit about your formative years when you were growing up. I'm a council estate boy from South London, a place called Chimbrook, um, which is sort of borders of South London in Kent. It was, a, it was fantastic, really, growing up. Like, mum and dad, obviously, younger sister. Uh, but I grew up on an estate where a lot of families moved on. It was only 10 or 15 years old, this estate. A lot of families moved on. And all the roads were named after famous boxers. So you had, like, Henry Cooper White. And then you had Lonsdale Close, which was my road. It was obviously named after the Lonsdale Boxing uh, Company, boxing suppliers, equipment suppliers. So it, it was just like, really, it was like a kid's playground. There were so many young families on there. And uh, so it was just football, football, football for me. And it was fantastic. You know, you sort of the law of the street. You become a little bit streetwise. So I'm definitely, uh, my education's through the street and the council estate and football clubs rather than academic side of, university and things like that I certainly learned from that but no it was a really good really good close family my mum's side of the family everyone lived within five or six uh, streets of each other so that was fantastic family around and just football all the time Keith. Well in regards to coaching Mick you've obviously and we'll go through it in this conversation you've now got a vast array of experiences and things that you've been through but for you personally 
were there any defining moments in your life growing up when you thought coaching was actually going to be your chosen profession? Not really. Not until I was sort of in my last two or three years of playing. You know, I was, I was one of the people that were lucky. It was before academy system, so I played for my junior team. I played for my county, my district. You know, so I played lots of football, like my school team, obviously, as I said. And uh, I used to go into Cholton. It was a school of excellence one or two nights a week. And football was fantastic. And I loved it. Some really excellent coaches back then. It was a lot of play with just a little bit of structure. Towards my last couple of years as a young professional at Cholton, uh, football become difficult. Um, I was a winger, but it was 4-4-2. It wasn't how the games evolved to now. It was probably five or ten years too early for that. And I think my enjoyment of the game would improve. So I came out of the pro game, went across, played a little bit in America, a little bit in Holland. And the Holland thing really grasped me. I've been a big fan of Dutch football all my life. And going across, they were playing 4-3-3, and I thought, oh, this is a different way of teaching. And there was a lot of things that spoke to me as a young person about how I saw the game. And when I dropped down, I was coaching at Chelsea, and I was dropping into a non-league game. I really realised that like, I had a lot of frustration with football. So my love had turned to frustration. It was the way that I was being taught it. It was the way that game was being played. And that, that was massive for me going into coaching, David. That it was like, okay, um, no one really taught skill. No one really taught creative way of teaching technique and invention. And that was how I saw the game. Um, I was a really bad Chris Waddle. I've said that a few times. But that probably sums up where I was at. And I just felt that football in England at the time, I'm an 80s boy, so English football through the 80s wasn't the most fashionable. And, and I think our coaching wasn't, at the time, very creative. It wasn't very player-centred. Um, so when I went into coaching, I went in with that. So I would say my influences from my last two or three years of playing gave me a huge energy to teach young kids a different way and to make them feel how, never feel how I felt at the end, you know? There are obviously reasons that you've been influenced by, but in terms of your coaching career to date, and even going through that process, were there any people that really influenced the way that you are now and, and the way that you grew throughout your coaching career? Yeah, I like when I first started coaching, I was a big fan of Sir Bobby Robson, and it was because obviously when I was growing up, and you had the you know. 86 and you had Italian 90 and things like that he was the coach and I was really fascinated that he went across with Barcelona PSV Sporting and he went across and worked in different countries and I just felt growing up that we were no one trusted English players outside of England and no one trusted English coaches so he was a big beacon for me and everything I read for Johan Cruyff has been a real massive influence on me as well I think he is like the most important person in the history of football, Johan Cruyff, just for both what he did on the pitch and off it. I've been lucky, David, to be around environments. So when people talk about players develop or coaches um, developing you or being a mentor, I would say I've been around two environments in Chelsea Academy, which was fantastic with the new managers coming in over a nine or 10 year period at Chelsea. There was Mourinho, there was Ancelotti, there was uh, Gus Hiddink, for example, these fantastic coaches coming in and Things were being drip-fedded down. But lots of really good youth coaches as well in that time. Um, and then the environment of Liverpool, which was completely different to Chelsea. I think that environment helped me. I think a lot of players as well over the time have had a big influence on me in terms of levels. 
you know, you think you know a level and then a player will show you another level. And I think that's been huge on me. Um, two coaches, I would say, not coaches I had when I was younger, but two coaches that I've worked with that have been my bosses, if you like. So Alex Inglethorpe at Liverpool and Steven Gerrard now at Rangers. Not for anything they've really taught me as a coach, but for the faith they've had in me. That has took me a long way. That's been inspirational. So I think there's lots of ways that you can have mentors or guiding lights. And um, I think any coach or any player that's asked me to has asked me the why question as well has helped me, David. As well, you know, when I'm coaching, like you know, Keith's one, um, you know, he'd always say, "But why me? Why this? And why that?" And then I have to articulate it. And I think that really pushes you on as well when you have to. It's not so much having your own ideas. My ideas have not changed from when I was a 23-year-old starting out at Chelsea to now being a 40-year-old with a lot more experience. 17 years later, I can just articulate it to you a lot better. Do you know what I mean? And that's because people have pushed me in on the why. So, mate, when you, when you first started coaching, I know we've had numerous conversations in the past but you, you did mention on one occasion that you had a dream of working abroad. What do you attribute that to? I want to change the perception of British coaches. I want to change the perception because when I grew up, as I say, so Bobby, maybe Terry Venables were the only influences you could look at that were English coaches that were world famous, that were out working abroad, learning a second language. So I definitely wanted to change perception. I wanted to be different to the everyday English coach as well, which was something that we're not doing, our players weren't doing, which is pleasing at the moment. I've been fascinated by overseas football. Probably Gaza's had a big influence on that with my generation. You know, the Gazetta Italia on Channel 4 every week, the inspiration that brought. Uh, as I say, I've been a big fan of Dutch football. Like everyone, your second favourite national team, I believe, is Brazil, just because of the way that they played and the, the way that that game is so different to how I was when, when I was growing up. So there was a lot of things in that. Also, when I was at Chelsea and the foreign coaches were coming in, they weren't just very, very good football people. They had fantastic people skills in terms of speaking a second language. So that's, them things were massive. So I set the goals quite high. And uh, obviously, you, if you get three quarters of the way, you've done well. And if you can get the full way, then, then you, you've obviously lived your dream. And I, I, I just think that. I think that sometimes we're in Ireland and on the island that the game's played a certain way. And I think cultures are massive in football. And, and uh, nothing that I've seen since I made them bets with myself, you know, at 22, 23, nothing I've seen is not, not added to that, you know, hunger to go abroad and work again and I'm definitely going to take that opportunity in the future which is great I know just prior to going out to Sao Paulo we'd not known each other very for any length of period of time at uh, when you were over at Liverpool working at the academy and uh, you pulled me over to one side and you you shared information to me which I was quite privileged to to find out you've you've been given the role at Sao Paulo, that was a that must have been a magnificent experience for you. It was a fantastic experience. Like when the opportunity came, it was uh, I had to go and look at it to digest it all. I knew that I was I felt I had the best youth development job in England at the time. Liverpool under twenty three, Jurgen Klopp, your manager, Alex Inglethorpe, academy manager, Neil Critchley under eighteens coach. A lot of people around me that I thought 
were very good. I had massive relationships with young players. I was on their journey. But if I'm always talking to them about you versus yourself and chasing down your dreams, if that was mine, I had to go over to Brazil to look at it. When I went over, Sao Paulo was such a famous club in South America, the size of them. And I went to the academy and watched the young kids. It was just such an important moment for me to grow. And it took me on probably 50%. Uh, there was reasons why I went and I stuck to my principles. There was reasons why I come home in the end, at the end of it, when it probably wasn't what I believed it to be on the way out. Uh, but what I took from it was, was fantastic. Again, at the time, I was fascinated by the second languages and learning about cultures. I'd worked with a lot of players from a European background, and this was a fantastic opportunity to go and work with players in South America to see how they saw the game. And it's rounded me off as a coach massively. It's, um, it's a shame that it ended after seven or eight months, but at least it was my choice, Keith. You know, I, I had my principles for coming away. It's nice for you to share part of that, mate, because what we'll start to do in the in this conversation is delve a little bit deeper around development, because I know that's very close, near and dear to your heart. But I know you've heard, you've been heard saying, as a young coach, you've got to break down a lot of boundaries. Now, I'm curious as to, to what you mean by that. Well, I think when I was young, I think I always felt experience and age was overrated it depends it's the quality of the experience and i've had really strong ideas on how what the game to to be played and to be taught to young lads but it's not easy getting your ideas across in your mid-20s um you know you, you, it's not easy to be listened to you've got to go and show your quality every day you've got to fight for every little bit of leadership you can get of a session because there might be an older coach that wants to leave from the front and there might be an academy manager that wants to dictate things to you so what I meant by that is it's quite difficult for people to listen and to trust you and give you responsibility. And, and I suppose that's why I speak about Alex Inglethorpe, who, who gave me the under-23 job at Liverpool really early. And then Stephen Gerrard, who, who gives me a lot of responsibility here as a young coach alongside him in a big job for him. So I think that's what I mean. When you're young, I think young people can have fantastic ideas. You know, you see a lot of the young German coaches now, they're promoting, you know, in the late 20s, early 30s to big, big clubs, people like Nagelsmann, you know, and Tedesco, they're getting jobs in the Bundesliga in the late 20s, early 30s. So I think experience is, is, is good if it's a good experience. But I think young people now, uh, young coaches can be so creative. It's important to have people around them that help them sort of, as I say, answer the why questions. But I just felt as a young coach, there was a lot of people that were, were going to make it difficult for me. And I still see that now. And that's why I try to share a lot and mentor a lot of young coaches. I think young people want to be heard more and more and more. Um, it's the same with young players. It's the same with young coaches as well. And with that, in regard to mentoring coaches, what advice would you give them on how to actually best develop players' individual playing identity? I think you've got to understand why he or she plays the game. I think that's important because I always say you're not there to coach motivation. You're there to coach players that are motivated. So it's important you know what motivates and drives a young player that comes into your session, regardless of age. You know, there's players who love staying with the ball and dribbling. There's players who love passing. There's nothing wrong with either. You've got to understand why someone plays the game, why their passion is, and then use that. I often think that you're closer to getting where you want to go, enhancing your strengths than what you are trying to round off all your, all your weaknesses. And I think, you know, for example, 
if someone's a really good dribbler, do they dribble on both sides? Uh, do they know when to dribble, when to pass? Do they know when to take the lens off themselves, if that makes sense? So I think the first thing as a coach is just understanding and promoting something that someone's good at or someone likes doing. Now, that's different for different ages, but my experience of working the six and seven-year-olds is quite used quite quickly with young players when they run on that astroturf, what they do when they get the ball the first two or three times, what makes them smile. It, I think that's quite easy. It's more complex as players get older. Um, but I would say that there's lots of different things. If you're working with real young players, you have to see something early on that makes them smile or they love doing. So when me and Keith were working back with seven, eights, nines, ten-year-olds, that's, oh, well, what a left foot. It's having that little thing that's, that's sacred to them. I always had lefties club because I'm a lefty. So you get all the lefties together and they've got to do five right-foot passes with you. Lefties club, something that you belong to, but don't forget we've got to work on our right foot and the someone's good at dribbling, teach them how to dribble because that's their passion for playing. Likewise, if someone loves defending, teach them how to defend because that motivation will keep them coming back to your sessions. As they get older, I think it's then, it's then making your strength a super strength. It's, you know, what are you at your best? You know, what does that feel like? How does, what are you doing every day to enhance it? How does that fit inside the team? How does that work with other players? So there's so many different ways to enhance someone's identity is is it would be it would take we could do a whole podcast on that david like how do you make someone the best version of themselves that's what we're trying to do what i would say is i really like coaching ratios to be young uh so, sorry coaching ratios to be small so i like one coach to six so in academy system now sometimes we have 20 players and we've got two coaches i think it's too wide so for each of them boys or girls that come into the academy to feel valued, I think we need to be one to six, one to seven, one to eight, so we can go around and do the welfare when they come onto the AstroTurf or onto the grass. We can start really getting into things that really inspire them. We can talk to the parents as well, because when you're talking to young players, to promote the identity the boy wants to be or the girl wants to be, parents are massive in that as well. So there's a big thing. I've sort of been... Not an expert, but I've experienced a lot of that from maybe seven through to 16 in the last few years older. When they're older, it's about pathway. It's about managing their pathway. They're so close to their dream that they feel, they feel so far away, but they're so close. And you can make or break a player in 12 or 18 months, I believe. So it's such a big, varied thing. How do you enhance someone's identity? We could probably stay on this for, for a good two days or so. We'll, uh, what we'll do, we'll get you back on for another one. We'll have, yeah, we'll sure. finish this and then we'll have episode two afterwards. So what, <laughs> sure. I'm going to touch on something you just said. So you just mentioned something about welfare. Mm-hmm. Expand on it. What do you mean by that? Well, I think when the kids arrive, like there's lots of stuff going on outside. You're not a social worker. You know, they're coming to, you're very lucky as a football coach or any, any person that coaches in sport and they the kids will get out of their parents' car and they'll run to the pitch. The same with first team players. They turn up in the morning, they're looking to do something that they love. So you're in a, a privileged position, all right? You can delve a long way away from that and then all of a sudden, football opens up the problems they're at home. Or football can be a solution to everything in their life because it's lovely. And, you, and I think that's the art of coaching. It's the skill of coaching. So for example, if you're coming into my session, David, and football's the release from everything else in your life, I can help you over time, but I don't want to go crashing and delving into stuff outside. So for me, 
if I know the name of your mum and dad, the name of your dog, the name of your, if I know who your favourite team is, I straight away there, there's so much I can talk to you about when you arrive on the AstroTurf. I can talk to you about the previous session, the previous game, but I can say, how's that dog? You know, as little Barney the dog or bloody hell, did you see that goal so-and-so scored yesterday for your team or oh, that manager? So straight away, there's that welfare. I can, I feel that if the coaching ratios are one to six, one to seven, one to eight, that we can see in you as you run on that pitch, whether you're an adult or a six or seven-year-old, what sort of day you've had because there's, I'm only looking at a few of you. If it's one to 20, there's a lot of people for me to check in on there. And I think the ratios are important, but I also think knowing your players. So it's not saying you can get the rapport, you can start building from day one. But as every session goes, you know more about your players. So you, you, you read their body language, you read they are. And just checking in with the welfare is massive. It's not so much what you're teaching when they're on the pitch, it's how they arrive to the pitch. What are they feeling about the game? What are they feeling about their development and what about about to happen? And what are they feeling about you helping them on their journey? And that don't change whether you're working with a 30-year-old international or a nine or 10-year-old coming in on trial. It's that feeling that you're going to give them and that relationship with the game. So I think the feeling part is massive and the relationship part, I think you need the both put together. I think it's quite easy. If you know what players want, they want to play the game. They want to play. They're there to play, not to listen to you. They're there because they want to do something they love. They'll want some competition and they'll want to learn. So player wants, player needs. You as a coach might think, player needs to work on his weak foot. When players arrive, I want to play a game. I've been in the classroom all day. How do you marry the two? Again, it's the, it's the skill of coaching. It's the skill of, it's the things that coaching courses don't tell you. Some people have it, and I think other people can gain them qualities and skills if they're exposed to the right environments. And that's why I say Chelsea and Liverpool did that for me, David. And with that being said, so without actually compromising the team then, so the older up you get, the more you've got to work with uh, units and teams. But how important is the practice design in actually helping maximise individual development as well as the team? Well, I think that's it. If you improve individuals, you'll definitely improve the team. All right, so if, if I can improve every player by 2 or 3%, that will make the team stronger. If I try and improve the team, it doesn't always work the other way because whether the players get the clarity of how this suits them and how it fits them. So I always think it's you versus yourself. That's what you've got to say to young players. It's about you getting better every day. When you, you plan a session, you want the ball rolling. You want them active. You want them playing. You want the session to be challenging. A session without no mistakes. There's no learning taking place. So if I say you go in, you put a session on, you go after oh, that. It was an immaculate session. I always think to myself when you hear coaches say that, well, did you pitch it below the level of the players? Training should be about rehearsal, playfulness, making mistakes, trying again. If you put something on and everyone does it perfect, then there's no, there's no learning or practice going on. So I think... Again, I'll come back to this. Player wants, player needs. How do you fit the two together? How do you play games within games? So if it's you, David, and you, Keith, we can play an 8v8 game here, and I can say to my assistant coach, just tell me who wins out David and Keith in midfield. Just tell me who wins the midfield battle. And straight away, you two are looking at each other, and that's individual development, because I've just took that notch of game up a level. 
there's certain general qualities that the boys need to be able to play for your club. So, for example, there's certain things we would work on at Liverpool that were needed to be able to play in the style of Liverpool. And then there's certain qualities young players need to be able to play inside a team, i.e. the ability to work hard, the ability to share, the ability to support, and to be able to function inside the team. So there's, there's certain ways of, of, of maximising a practice. So it would be easy for me to say, you know, at first team level now, we split off in different units. And each unit coach looks after five or six players and what they need. Now, a lot of centre forwards need the same thing. A lot of defenders need the same thing. And when they get older, the art of conversation is massive because I could have lunch with you today, David. I could have breakfast with Keith tomorrow. You're both centre-backs. We can discuss where you're at and you'll give me the general things you want to work on. We'll agree on some. When we go out tomorrow and I do that um, dealing with long balls into the centre-forward and used to again up and heading, Keith thinks it's for him. David, you think it's for you. So because we've had that prior conversation, so what I would say is your planning is massive. Who's your best players? What are you doing for them today? How are you using your staff to maximise every player's learning? They're really important, but it's the conversations you have before training or when a player arrives about what you're doing today will fuel your session. So them things are massive as well. I always say it's 80% of what you do before the session is actually what happens. And, and and so, therefore, it's part of the planning process. I hate it when someone writes a session plan out and they could just photocopy it and put it in a book. Why do you have, like, a oh, 30 by 20-yard area, three times five minutes? Why do you have the rules of the practice? It's your session plan. If you don't know it, no one knows it. You should write, I'm going to tell Keith he needs to get his shoulders open. Remember, he's working on playing forward. Talk to David about, you know, his movement off of the ball because that's something he's working on. So I think that when you write your session plan, your session plan should talk to individuals. I had to do that in Brazil because it was in a second language, but it wasn't something I was actively doing before. But I thought, come on, like we write out session plans like we're writing them for a book, like they're going to be published tomorrow. The session plans are, it's a working document, isn't it? It's live. And of course, what we're doing, Mick, is we're, we're coaching in the moment yeah. rather than coaching to a script. Yeah. Yeah, for right. sure. And you told that on your first courses, don't you? Coach what you see. Rather than, you know, you're going your UA for B and you've got your four or five things you want to get down. And whether the ball even goes there, you're going to get them four things out because you think that's going to... But it's that flow, isn't it, of coaching what you see and, and coaching people. So like, you know, you get to senior men's football or, or women's football in the elite professional game. You have some real clear rules. But you've got to have, uh, you've got to have collaboration where you allow players to bring what they bring to the team. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's why you coach individuals and the individuals enrich your team. You know, for all of the brilliant teams over the history of football, we can all name five, six, or seven, or eight. We can, we know millions or hundreds and thousands of top players. So, you know, as coaches, we, we are important, but we're not as important as what we think. So, Luke, Mick, you've worked across all the phases. You're now working at a high level. You're working with international players. You've developed players from foundation phase now, and or I've done, and you've spent lots of years really fostering good practice. Now, when you're working with young players that need to move from, say, 7v7, they then move into 9v9s, and then they transition into the 11v11, the 
full side game. How can coaches help best develop and get the players so they get a greater understanding of these transitions? I think we overdo it, Keith, if I'm honest. I think these young kids will go home there and they play PlayStation, it's 11v11. They don't play 7v7 on their little FIFA on, on the computer and that. So I think as well we need to use scene setting. So if I was to say to a young boy, um, play like Van Dyke, he knows where Van Dyke plays. And if I say like play like uh, Salah or play like Firmino, play like Trent Alexander, for example, when he was at Liverpool, I think the boys know that. I think we have to concentrate on the fundamentals to play in the game, which are receiving, moving and releasing. Three massive things. How do you receive to turn? How do you receive to protect? How do you receive to take it to space? You know, is there a one-touch turn? Is there a two-touch turn? Is there a no-touch turn? You let the ball run across your body. What's your back foot? What's your front foot? Your moving is dribbling compared to running with the ball. Your releasing is your shooting, your passing technique. How can I interact with one player? How do I interact with two? So the thing that doesn't change is we'll play a game this evening, Rangers, and when our goalie gets it, he'll have one centre-back on his left and one centre-back on his right. And he'll have one forward. And if they bring two forwards, then we'll bring one more midfielder. So it's like the small games in the big game. How do I play 1v1? How do I think in 1v2? So if I can't get past you, Keith, how do I use David for a 1-2? How do I use David's movement? How do I disguise to use David to move? Because that takes away the physicality of me v you. Because it might be that one of us is more mature. So I would say your 1v1, your 2v1, your 3v2s or your 2v2s plus an option arriving for either team. I would only coach the small games within the big game. I wouldn't worry too much about... Because I think when you, in any game, if you paused it and you drew a 20 by 20 yard area around the ball, it, that's what it is. It's 2v2, 1v1, 3v2, little over and under loads. And I, I just think we overplay it with the with the different age groups. If, if you wanted to talk about how do you move from sevens to nines to elevens, then I would just keep adding more players on the sides. I would keep, if you wanted to talk about if I was an academy manager, I would keep the middle of the tip pitch pretty similar in every age group. I'd just add two on the sides at the back that have to run the length of the pitch, and I'd add two up the pitch. I wouldn't complicate it too much. I would always come back to, okay, can you receive to play forward? Can you do it on your own? Or do you need to help, help with somebody else? When we're defending, do you trust your mate to defend 1v1? Or do you go and help him? And just keep building it off of that. I, I do think we overdo it, mate, for sure. Now, look, I, I mean, the simplicity of it all is the genius. And you make, I think, the, the art of something that is complicated when it's actually explained by someone as experienced as yourself. You make it sound so simple. Now, we talk about the players. We've spoke a little bit about coaches and we'll delve a little bit more around that shortly. But we've, we've not mentioned anything about the parents. And of course, they're a major stakeholder in all of this. So what advice, if any, could you give, would you give to parents or guardians of someone that have a, a son or, or a daughter that's having it, that has got an involvement in an academy system? First thing, like this was something that was said to me by a guy, Damien Matthew, ex-player that gave me a job at Chelsea. I watched on one of my first nights when I was putting the cones out for the sixes and sevens down at Long Lane Football Club for Chelsea Development Centre. And he's, a parent come to see him and he said, the boy was seven. 
I was like, Damien, how do you think he's doing? He went, stay cool. He needs to work on everything, right to left, head to toe. And I've just used that. I've stole that and I've kept that all the time. The most important thing is, uh, if you're parent friendly, I don't think it brings you problems. I think it brings you solutions as you go along. And I think you can model behavior. So what I would say with, um, a, 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 it's the same as when you have children, you go to school. I, I worked with a, a fantastic coach at Chelsea, Brian Mustill. I know you, you know him yourself, Keith. And like, he had children earlier than me because he's older than me. And he was taking his daughter home one day from school. And he was talking to his daughter about her day in the classroom. And then he rung me straight after and says, Mick, we're doing too much for the young kids. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, oh, I have a daughter in the car and we were talking about schoolwork. And I realized what we're asking young kids to do is too much. So I've definitely become a better coach for becoming a parent. I'm not telling all young coaches to go out and get their good young lady pregnant straight away. That's not the idea. But I do think you grow because you see how young people learn in your own house every day and how they take on information. So I think interacting with parents is important to understand the kid, understand the things that might be going on in their life, to also help the parents understand because they're going through it for the first time maybe. And even if they're not going through it through the first time, this boy or this daughter is just as important as the one that's gone through it previously. So, you know, each one's to their own. So I think you have to model behavior that you want from the parents. I think you have to explain to the parents the process you're going through. So. When we're, when we're asking young boys maybe not to pass so much when they're in the seven, eight, nine-year-old phase and pick and choose when to play with one player, some parents might not like that. Some parents might be wanting passing more and they want their young team under sevens, they want Liverpool's under sevens or eights or Rangers or Chelsea's under seven or eights to look like the first team now. So you have to explain your vision for their child, I think. Likewise, when you go into a school, you're not worried about how the class is doing at maths. You want, you want to know how your son or daughter is doing at maths. And also on the, on the flip side of that, and I hope I'm explaining myself well here, on the flip side of that, you want to just know that your child's happy, feels safe, feels secure, is enjoying it. And I think a lot of academies push parents away when all they want to know is them things, Keith. They want to know, is their kid happy? What are they good at? What can the parent help them get better at? If that was a school environment and you said to a school teacher, oh, what's my son or daughter good at? And they said, well, look, they're struggling a bit with maths. As a parent, you'd want to know that because in the evening, you'd want to support that. With football clubs, we tend to push parents away. And I think we miss a massive opportunity in terms of, again, the well-being and the welfare of the kid. So I think that's really important. Without me, because you can see I'm passionate about this stuff. So I hope I'm putting it across well. I think for me, be parent friendly as an academy educate them there's boundaries to it of course but i think it's so important that you can tell a parent what your their son does well so they can see with their eyes and you're confirming it you're not saying he's going to be lionel messi you're saying he's got a good left foot there's nothing wrong with that everybody jumps up off of optimism and i think that's it as long as you're honest and i'm very lucky there's a lot of players playing now professionally in in the big leagues and internationals that I coach at six, seven, eight, and their parents and and them players ring me for advice. And that means I did something right. We've touched on that, Mick, the foundation, age groups, the younger players, dealing with the parents. Your journey has covered the whole scope. You've gone from the babies all the way up to the men. Now, from when you first started working in development football 
and you're now in performance and result coaching. I'm intrigued as to, in your, from your perspective, what the similarities and the differences are between the two. What I would say is like when you start coaching famous players or players that you've watched on TV, don't get caught up with the celebrity. Don't get caught up with the status. Just deal with the person. So I've, I've had to go through that. So that's why I like giving advice on this. You get to like 23s coach at Liverpool and one or two first team players drop down like a Balotelli or, you know, you might have Coutinho for a day or someone like that or Firmino or you, you might be lucky you might have a Steven Gerrard or a Jamie Carragher and you think, oh, oh, they could kill me here. Do they like me? I think you've got to focus on the person. Why do people play football? Because they love it. So what do they want to do? They want to play. They want to do something they love doing. So if you know the player, that helps you because they either love passing or they love shooting or they love dribbling or defending. So they want to play the game. They want to do something they love today. That's why they're there. And they want to improve. And they want competition. If you love football, you love competition. So we do a lot of practices at first team level. I would equally go back and do with under nines or tens. It's quite funny. I did a CPD last year with a Rangers star. I coached the under 11s team for an hour in the indoor and then went in and put a video on of the first team players doing the same drills. It's football. You, what you demand from an older player, and obviously naturally the level of the competition around them means the challenges go up. But I think there's, if you know why people play, I think you can coach. I think you've got to speak to that, that motivator inside. And that's why I say it always comes back to how a young player what he loves about the game and how you can use their strength and why they play the game for the biggest driver in their development. As I said, if someone's a good dribbler, teaching to dribble off both sides, teaching when to dribble, when not to dribble. So there's so many things you can round off. What I would say is something that I want to elaborate on is, is something I think is really interesting we don't talk about a lot is how do people com compete? So when we're talking about competing, so I know I'm going off track here, but I'm, I'm good at this. So let me just go off track. So I'm good at going off track. So I like, I like doing it. But when you're competing, right, um, some people compete with invention. So what I'm saying is if you're competing against a little wizard, he won't try and fight you. He'll try to outplay you because that's how he competes. That's how he wins. Other people uh, compete with physicality. So, right, I'm going to beat you, Keith, and I'm going to get tight to you, and I'm going to outmuscle you, and I'm going to make tackles. Other people, David, they compete with pure effort. So they can be losing in the first 10 minutes, all right, but they can win the marathon. And the other thing is you want to find out when players quit. And I love looking at young players. and I love to look at their faces when they're competing because some people are so stressed when they're competing and other people are so calm. So this thing about physical contact, when I came back to Liverpool and was working with the younger age groups after working at first team, training had to be physical. It didn't have to be physical in terms of, I wanted players to know what their body was for, what their arms were for, what their legs were for. I wanted that contact. I wanted to feel that. And I wanted them to compete. And without telling the coaches too much, because you, I didn't want to feel like players, younger coaches don't want to fill their heads with too much. You want to give them a simple process. I was starting to see these things. How do players compete? Because you say, you want, when they come, whether they're a first-team player or a kid, they're there to play football, so they want to play football. They want to do something that's fun. They want to compete, and they want to do something to learn and develop. So they're massive. But So when people are competing, how do they compete? And, and what does their face look like when they're competing? And I think it's always taking a picture every day when you're training of your player. That's why I like staff. 
You know, if anyone that has seen me work, I have lots of staff around it. When I was a 16th coach, I used to have seven or eight staff. Alex Inglesworth was a co manager. I wanted him to come out. I had six or seven staff around the group. As a first-team coach, I liked that. When we went back to Liverpool to work at the foundation phases, as Keith will know, I brought coaches from other age groups to be around it. I wanted people around the players because I wanted the players to feel that buzz and I wanted the staff to, to bounce off them with that welfare and talk to players about what they're good at. I wanted that environment. I wanted to feel it. You know, sometimes you watch a coaching session without knowing what they're doing is a feeling around it. And I think that's it. It's, um, that's the magic of coaching, really. Uh, and it doesn't matter what age group. As I say, you're talking to that seven-year-old within the 30-year-old why he's playing. And that's why I say you're not there to coach motivation. Only players that want to play the game. And, and yeah, you can see I can go on, on about it for a long time. But I think that's it. It's the excitement for the next session. You've got to love going on the journey. You've got to love the job, the players, got to get to know the parents. You've got to be a huge shining light in the kid's life. You've got to be a huge shining guidance in the parent's life. You've got to promote the right things. And you try and take off with them. You know, it's a wonderful job. It's a wonderful profession that we're in. And again, I come back to what's natural and then how do you feed it? So if a kid's seven, what's natural to him? How do you feed it? I work with Jermaine Defoe now, he's 38. He loves to score goals. It's not hard to coach Jermaine Defoe. If I think about who Jermaine Defoe is and what he's achieved, I'm only making it harder for myself. Just focus on what does Jermaine Defoe love? How can I engage that? How can I challenge that? How can I provoke it? So if I can't, if he's doing brilliant, then how do I get more of him? I've got to poke him a little bit of a stick. I've got to provoke him to say, oh, there's a striker over there that's good or this, that and the other. And he's still got that energy at 38, which shows what he's about. But that's what I'm talking about. I don't think he's changed from when I played with him at 15, 16 at Charlton Centre of Excellence, which is fantastic. Mm. There's so much detail in that answer, Mick. Now, the one thing, love the bit about the competing. And that'll be something I'll be listening back to. Now, the next question leads on to your journey from moving from Liverpool to joining the ultimate competitor as a player, Steven Gerrard at, at Rangers. Can you just tell us briefly how that actually came about? It was a big surprise to myself. Uh, I'd been away. I was under 23s coach at Liverpool and Steven was due to come back into the club to work with various age groups. And that coincided with me with me leaving, which was a big disappointment because I've been a huge fan of Steven during his career. Uh, we came back, but we didn't overlap. I was very much working with the younger coaches and he was busy taking the under 18s. And just one day, I had a missed call from a number I didn't know and it was him. And we sat down and had a coffee and he invited me to come. And I had a decision to make because I'd just come back to Liverpool. I'd already left once and I was, I was really enjoying the job, mentoring and working with the coaches. I felt like we were on to such a fantastic thing at the time. So, but uh, I, I just thought it would be fantastic to learn. And, you know, when I heard that Gary McAllister was coming as well, a person I've got huge respect for, the chance for me to work with them in a huge club, huge challenge I love a challenge like the challenge part of me it's what's going to get you out of bed isn't it David every day do you know what I mean and I had to weigh up what was going to get me out of bed a little bit earlier with a little bit more spring in my step with a little bit more energy and this opportunity was that so we had a really nice conversation I'd learned to be very honest where as a younger coach I wasn't you know if an opportunity came maybe I took the opportunity rather than really 
wanting to chew the fat on the bits and bobs around the job. Uh, so I did that with Stephen and um, he stayed very true to his word in terms of what he wanted from me. And that's given me real clarity and it's given me room to grow and develop. It, it's been fantastic. And as I say, it's never easy to leave Liverpool once, let alone twice. But I know I've made a very, very good decision because the last two or three years, again, I've kept growing, which is important for me. I'm on this you versus yourself journey, the same journey I promote with players. You versus yourself can be a team as well, by the way. It doesn't just have to be an individual, but my you versus yourself, I'm, I'm very fortunate in life that I get to do a lot of my you versus yourself. So if I set myself challenges, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to attack them head on with different opportunities. And I feel that I'm, I'm in a very fortunate place at the moment because I'm getting to do that here. So Mick, having that opportunity to, to coach first team football, be around special people in Steven Gerrard. But when you're actually playing in front of a packed Ibrox, what is it like being in the dugout? What is it like when you've got that, your 50, 60,000 spectators and you, you know, is, that, was, is that new Brazil, to you? Yeah. No, Brazil was amazing for that because like a second language as well. So I thought the fact that I didn't know so much of the language helped me just to focus because I think you know if you know the language you can get caught up with the media and get out with the caught up with the fans and what they're saying the historia of it I traveled around Brazil and played in massive games in front of 70,000 I didn't really know all that I was just focused on the 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 environment and the moment and when you're in front of a big fans it's not so much the sound of the goal going in it's that big gasp by 30,000 people just before it's going to go in or go wide that's incredible that will never change and the last couple of years, I've sort of, um, as part of my own development, I've been I've stood away from the dugout in the first half, or, the, or for as long as possible, really, for as long as I can. I go upstairs so I can get a different perspective of the game, that, so I can help the staff with that. It helps me as well because I'm learning the game and I want to read what I predicted beforehand might happen. I want to see if that's the reality. I want to see if I can help the rest of the staff at half-time or players with a different perspective by just being back from it. So that's helped me. But I remember one game last year, we were playing at home in uh, the Europa League and I came down from the director's box after about 40 minutes just before half-time. And I came down the tunnel and it was an evening game and the crowd were going crazy because we was playing well against Porto. And just for that one time, I actually took it in. You know, I actually had a nice view of the pitch. I was slightly higher of it coming down the tunnel. And the players were playing in the crowd. It was an evening going under lights. And you realise how privileged you are. I don't ever wake up and not have a day where I don't feel privileged, to be honest. I, I still would love to be working with nine and ten-year-olds because that's the purity of the game. If I could merge the two jobs, if I had time, I would. But... Um, I'd hate to say you get used to it, but obviously it does become your norm. Every three days you do go into a stadium with, with fans and you're feeling it even more at the moment with this COVID situation when we don't have the fans in. The match day don't feel the same. Um, they're, just, they're just people, Keith. You know, like when you're an outsider and you're a fan or when you're a younger coach, you look at the first team, they're like superhuman. They're just people. Like they're, you know, they're no different to the under-16s that I coach, the under-17s or 18s. It's just they're... They're in, they're, they're in the public eye now and there's a lot of media around it. And I think if you can take all the background noise out, because I think if you focus on all the background noise and the media and hysteria, you, you miss out on really key relationships and special things that happen. And they're the same special things that happen in an under 16 dressing room or under 12 dressing room and the first team dressing room. It's the experiences. When I was in Brazil and I was in the changing room, 
I had learned to read body language so well because I didn't know all the language keys. So I was sitting there, I was looking at how people handle pressure, how they were before the game, how one player was very excited before a game, how that might knock the concentration of another player. So there's so much thing, but going back to your, your original question, because I've gone off task a bit there, it's like, it is a privilege. You don't, you know, you're so lucky, but obviously you're getting on with your job. Um, you're focusing on your job. So when you're actually part of the game, you, you're detached a little bit. So you're over in the, or you're sat in the director's box, gathering and corralling information from seeing the pictures that you, you see on the pitch. Obviously, you've mentioned it to be fair, because it's a bit quieter now because of the COVID situation. But when you, when you then come back down to pitch side and you're, you're playing in front of 50-odd thousand spectators, and you want to get information across to players that are actually in, they're on the pitch. How do you go about doing that? I don't think there's a language that you might have, you know, there's hand, there's certainly hands. I think it's a look. I think with most of the best players that you work with, it's less words and more of a look and thumbs up goes a long way to professionals as it does to young kids, as it does to your son or daughter when they're looking at you and they might be, doing something at school and you, you go along and just that little thumbs up, it does a lot. I think there's a lot that you can you can say in your body language as a manager and a coach as well. We have a few certain things that we like to work on as a staff and the players understand them. And that's why I say a lot of what you're doing is the conversations you have off the pitch. It's the building blocks. It's the, the journey that you're on as a team or the journey that you're on as players. So I think there's, there's a lot of clarity you have to give players so when they go on the pitch, you're preparing them for what's coming, but that they have real clarity on their role. And I think that's it. I think you have to realise that when they're playing, you have to trust them. So how do you trust professional players in front of 50 or 60,000? How do you make them think collectively? That comes down to your work during the week and, uh, and some key things you promote. Um, so it's different. In a, in a manager, manager staff, you'll have someone who's going to, come away and he's going to analyse the bits on the team and there's other people in the management team that are going to go and speak to certain individuals that they work with every day in their units and I think that's it I think it's a big collaboration I think at first team level um, the players obviously know they've got a big status they've got an identity as a player some of them are internationals so I think you collaborate with them I think you put a suggestion you put a good story over to them and they have to run with it I think with young players they're much more willing to follow anything because they don't know they don't know if that makes sense so they're willing to follow you when you get to first team level you have to collaborate so when does that collaboration take place it takes place over coffee at the coffee machine it takes place over lunch or breakfast it takes place on the walk out to the pitch on the walk back in it takes place via a text message the informal is is genius in my opinion like the formal stuff i'm not so keen on I like to have like a running relationship with everybody, if that makes sense. I'm curious, Mick, around, you know, you're dealing with individuals working in a collective, but when you, when you're in a, you know, cauldron and there's information that needs to be get, you need to get their information out in the moment. Is that information tactical? Is it an individual thing or is it something where, it's going to help rescue a player or rescue the team, potentially. How do you get it across to someone or how do you get information across to someone who's on the other side of the pitch? 
I think like we have real clarity to everything that we do leads to how we want to play. There's not like if you if you come to watch our staff work, it's not it's not a, it's not like oh what's the theme of today? The theme's always the style that we are, and we have some very simple rules like we want to own the pitch, we want to own the ball, we want to dominate the penalty boxes. Three really simple things underneath them categories. There's loads of little bullet points, but we know how to own the pitch. We know the areas we want to protect. We know we want to work. We want the line behind to manage the line in front. We want the line in front to block for the line behind. So there's lots of little things. It's, people think it's so complex, the simplicity. So if you want people to have clarity quickly, then you have to keep it simple. Then you have to rely on, okay, what brings all that together? What's the glue? Well, motivation, fitness, togetherness, the sense of uh, the common calls. That's what all the glue that brings all these ideas together. You can talk to the nearest player and he can pass out through the team. We've seen more and more now people are giving notes. We actually see him more and more where there's tactically people going down and staying down so that the team can come over and get a drink and the managers can have almost, have almost a time out. There's all these things that you can use, but I would say like you have to have a lot of collaboration with your players every single day. I think you're a product of the last 100 sessions. I always say that. I've been saying that since I was a youth coach. What you do it for 100 days is what you're seeing on the pitch. So you have to, don't waste one and always be working towards empowering the players. And I think that's it. You've got to empower the players and then allow them to be the best version of self. Your job as a coach is to organize them and give them balance and maybe give them a common cause, you know, to make the, to, to make the vehicle move. Um, because the team is the vehicle, isn't it? So to make to a vehicle to everyone's dreams, it's the vehicle to everyone's individual performance, it's the vehicle to the staff's achievement as well. So in my term of team management is that, empowering the players. And what I would say is you'll have a leadership group in your team or a backbone of your team that should be like you as coaches. They don't need to know everything that you know as a coach, but they need to know the fundamentals. And what I would say, Keith, in that moment is you, you rely on the work that you've done previous. Moving forward and looking at the game and seeing where it's going, it appears that in all aspects of the game, players appear to be getting quicker, they appear to be getting faster, they appear to be getting stronger. For you, what, what qualities will coaches need to develop now to be able to work with the future players? Uh, I think you have, to be, uh, you have to facilitate playfulness and rehearsing within your training because the kids are not getting this outside of us so in the UK if we're going to develop young players to the level of the top world stars then we have to allow them to play and rehearse to create these new movements to create these things that people of our generation can't eat we don't have that creation to give it to give it that to them I don't think coaches uh, create the next skill that we see in the World Cup or the Champions League in the games that come in. Young players do. So within our sessions, when do we give them that moment to be placeful and rehearse? Or are, do we always want them to train how they play? Which means they'll always play at the level of their last game. So do we train to get better? Do we train to improve? Do we train to rehearse? I also think we're going to have uh, more hybrid players and less position-specific players. So I think the players now, the centre-backs are getting smaller and more technical, more rounded. 
Your wide players are scoring more than your number nines. If you look around the world, you look at your Salah, your Mane, your Messi, your Ronaldo's. They're like they're like hybrid forwards, if you like. Um, I think the ability to eliminate the first player is always going to be desired. Uh, what I would say is you don't always have to eliminate him yourself. You can eliminate him with a pass and a run. So I think that that's it. When they say the game's getting quicker and faster, I don't mean that. I don't think that every player is going to be like Usain Bolt. I think the speed of decision-making is going to get quicker and therefore receiving skills. So I was talking about action man hips. I mean, you're a kid and you've got the action man, the hips turn. The mm. players who have got action man hips are the best players in the world. So any of the top players you can think of, they've got action man hips. They can twist and turn away from pressure. They can receive quicker so they can see. So I think that these, these sort of things you should be going crazy about in your academy. Um, I, I think environments are massive as well, David. Why does one player make it, another one doesn't? It's maybe pathway, but it's environment. And the environment's got to feed the ambition of the young kid that's in front of you. It's really difficult because it gets to a stage sometimes where as a coach, you might not believe, but you might have to advise a young player at some stage that if they can't move forward, they move sideways to move forward. But it's about moving forward, that everyone's journey is unique. Uh, in life everyone's journey is unique don't look sideways to compare only for inspiration it's you versus you every single day and I think that that's it I think uh, we we need more inspirational coaches so we need more more coaches you, you can use the word psychologist if you like but it's more more inspiration um, linked to where's the game going and I think it's going and that's why I would say about this receiving moving releasing don't make your youth development program too complex. Receiving, moving, releasing. How do I compete? How do I combine with one or two others? How do I support teammates? You'll need that. If you want to add another one, if you want to be really tactical, what's on your left hand, what's on your right hand? So when you're traveling with the ball, what's on your left hand, what's on your right hand? Is there options there? Have you got your eyes down the pitch or have you got them on your toes? These little sayings, the ball moves, you move. They're, they're genius, these sayings. I don't think we have to go too far away from that. Hmm. Now, Mick, changing tack slightly, what advice would you give to any young coach wanting to follow a similar career path to your own? Well, I think you need to work backwards. So I think you need to go, right, where are you going to go? So mine was, right, by 40, I was 40 in September, by the way, by 40, I want to be in a fantastic position in terms of my career, in terms of I want to be you know, working at a good level. Ideally, I want to be working abroad as a head of youth or a manager in the first environment. So some of the things I did, my ankle was, can I be an under-18s coach? Because my under-18s coach, it was like the dream job. So I had this massive dream, and then I had the one that was in between. So if I don't reach the stars, or maybe I'll just reach the clouds, and I'll be happy with that. Now, from that, what did I have to go and do then? I had to try and work in a good club. I had to learn from people. I needed my badges. If I was going to go and work abroad, I needed to, to, to know what that elite football looked like. I needed to be able to speak a second language. So these were things I started knocking down. And I think then you have to, you have, to have a real eye of how you're going to coach the game, but more so how you're going to make the players feel. And then my advice would be share on the journeys. So when you go on your level two and there's other coaches on there, share on their journey because it's all part of journeys and learning experiences and you know, there's a great camaraderie in that, but the young players and the parents that you start coaching, go on a journey with them. Go on a journey with them. And I think that's because that is so fulfilling. So 
there's two things here, isn't there? There's where do you want to go? What does it take to get there? What eat, and then celebrate each little bit and knock down every little bit as you go. But the other thing is don't forget to live in the now and go on the journey with the people that are around you. I honestly think that there's been some people that maybe have held me back at times. I honestly think I'll probably upset one or two people sometimes with my, maybe my ignorance or my confidence in my own conviction or my own ideas. But I do know that I've, I've you know, I've been alongside some young players and, and their parents and gone on fantastic journeys with them. And I think they have got me to the next job. I think the word of mouth from players and parents has got me on rather than the coach going, let's promote Mick or give Mick an opportunity. I think that, I think that the word of, and so therefore you have to be really honest with yourself then. It's not an act. You're not, it's not too deliberate what you're going on. You know, yes, you have this pathway you'd like to go on as a coach, but don't forget the relationships along the way and the experiences. I see that a little bit with young people and that's why I said that quote about it's hard being a young coach because you, I see a lot of young coaches and young people, they're desperate for it now. So therefore they just need to sit down and be given a work in progress. It might not be as quick as they want, but it won't be slow either. It's somewhere in between and just keep working. You versus yourself. It's quite simple. If you do that challenge versus yourself and it's not about anything else, not about money, it's not about anybody else patting you on the back is about your own sense of achievement, then I think you'll work towards it. Whether you get where you want at the end, it depends how high you, you set your, or, or, or how small the top bit is. But I think you'll work forward if you work on the you versus you. Now, if you had a golden rule, Mick, or two, or several, I'm sure there'll be many in there, but there's one golden rule that Actually, I explained how you operate and go about doing your job. What What is that rule? I think it's to make it best spoke, Keith. I think, I think that's it. If I was to say, yeah. you know, when we were back working with the under-10s or under-9s at Liverpool, when them kids come on, I wanted to make it best spoke to them. I didn't want one size fits all. When you go into the different clubs, you've got to understand that Chelsea's different to Liverpool. So you can't do it the Chelsea way in Liverpool. You have to embrace the club so it's best spoke to Liverpool. It's the same when you go to Sao Paulo or Rangers. And I think when you're mentoring coaches again, you know, I used to say with all the guys that I was mentoring there at Liverpool, I used to come and meet you all for lunch. And that's why I'm overweight. So I've had so many lunches <laughs> and different plates and rolls. Here and there. The idea was I can do coach education. They can stand in front of a group and put on a prep presentation. Anyone can do that. But it's what it means to you and it's how you see it. And so that was the time that I needed to give each of the coaches to understand them to then be understood. And it's the same, that's what I'm saying with the being parent friendly. That's what I'm saying, you need more than you. You're not superhuman. If you try and, you know, if you try and be the power of everything across a group of 25, 26 players, you're gonna fail. You need more staff. You need to you need to get the right people around you for sure. So there's a bit of trial and error in that, but then you need to feed off of relationships and you need to make things bespoke. I think the best players in the world wanna know. They want to know what you want from them, but they want to know what they're getting out of it and how this promotes them. And that's why I would say people always stay with you if they're enjoying it, if they're developing, if they believe in the common cause, if it's promoting them. That's why I say, how do you engage someone? How do you challenge them? How do you provoke them? And that's why I think it's got to be bespoke. And that's why I would always say that it's, it's, it's individuals that make the team up. You know what I mean? I think you have to find that. And it's the same with young coaches. You've always got to give people speak of optimism. You've always got to speak positively, even in the most desperate of times. You've got to be that. So for me, 
Uh, I could use the word positive. I could use the word uplifting. I could use the word energetic, as you can hear it in my voice. But for me, what it is, is best spoke. It's working out how I can help you get forward. The energy from, from your voice, the enthusiasm in which you communicate your messages. And I've seen you operate. I've seen you work. I've been around you. I've been fortunate to have some of those bacon butties, by the way. But if Mick had to describe Mick, Michael Beale had to explain Michael Beale, football coach. What would you say about yourself? Talkative, as you found out. No, I, I, uh, I would say probably demanding, demanding myself, demanding the people around me. Uh, I would say I want the best for everybody. Um, some people might not always think that straight away, but it will come back. But I just, if I wanted to say, if I wanted to promote something myself, it would be this journey of you. You can do it. So let's get a formula for how you might do it and let's go for it. Because that's how I feel. That's the journey I've been on as a coach, this you versus yourself. Um, I had a huge energy for it because I was making up for maybe not making it as a player and, 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 and being frustrated myself or being heartbroken, if you like. So I think sometimes the energy comes off of a big um, disappointment. So that's what I don't want kids to have. So I can be honest with a child at a time or a young player when I think they're maybe not going to reach where they are, but I want to sell them a story that they can reach a stage where they can be really proud of themselves. So it's you versus you. Um, so if I had to describe myself as, as a coach, it's, it's, it's that. It's trying to, it's trying to up. I think I'm very creative in the way I work and in terms of session plan and all that, but that's not it. You know, that's the bit that happens on the grass is going to happen at 11 o'clock regardless. I think it's the way you make people feel about their relationship with the ball and the game and where they're going. That's what I want to be in control. Not in control of, I want to be on the journey. Mm. Mick, brilliant. And I, before we jumped on this and started recording, I said to you that in the making of the book, there were obviously conversations that were had and I was... I was the lucky one and I, and I would say I, I probably still am because I've got the transcribes on my laptop from those conversations. And the things that, that you've provided today for our listeners, just absolute goldust. I mean, seriously goldust. And it's so obvious and evident that you're, you're passionate about what you do and the amount of people that you'll have influenced and will continue to influence and impact positively during your coaching career and your life will be exponential so look from us we want to both thank you for giving us the opportunity to have you on today and and I want to thank you from from our listeners as well because I have no doubt that that they'll echo the same thoughts and feelings that we have about this interview too no, it's been a pleasure, lads. I say I will come on again in, in the future if you'll have me back on because there's obviously a lot we can talk about in different aspects of the game. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic game. No matter what level you work at, it's fantastic. Be passionate about it because uh, as someone's you know son or daughter that's in front of you, whether they're a big famous superstar, it's still someone's son or daughter. And if they're seven-year-old starting out, it's someone's son or daughter. So you know, you're, you're teaching them the game in the way that, you want it to be loved and to be played. So it's a pleasure to come on and uh, I'll never say no. So if you want us back, you can contact me anytime. Thanks, Mick, and good luck for the rest of the season. Cheers, man.
Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.